Will they do it? conversation with Genevieve Bennett, Artistic Director of Redbird Theatre, a Twin Cities-based collective of professional artists that are committed to a rigorous collaborative process and the execution of challenging, provocative work. She founded it alongside Managing Director Michelle Hernick, and they are committed to working with the highest caliber artists and to produce plays that expose life's transcendent moments. Moments that defy boundaries of time and place to feed our fundamental hunger for connection and meaning. Whether ancient or contemporary, their productions remind audiences of our common humanity while celebrating nuances of our individual experiences. I took that synopsis directly from their website. You can read it for yourself and learn more at redbird-theater.com. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. With an MFA in directing from Columbia University, and a BFA with honors in theater from the Experimental Theater Wing, Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, Genevieve serves as the chair of the theater department at St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists, where she co-designed the curriculum alongside Brian Gorenson. Genevieve and I spoke this summer in the Lowry Lab in downtown St. Paul. She shed light on how and why Redbird was formed, tracing its roots as far back as her first theater company, which she started as a high school junior. We talk about a process that she calls developing shorthand with your collaborators and how to surround yourself with the right people, intelligent people that challenge your point of view. Genevieve shares lessons learned from parenting and explains the way she sees teaching as service and service as an antidote to doubt. We dive deep into a discussion regarding vital elements that women bring forward when in leadership roles, and she gives advice to young artists, women in particular, emphasizing the responsibility not to wait, but to create your own opportunities. Genevieve was my instructor for many years at SPCPA and my director in multiple shows. It was actually in her acting studio that I first began to step into my identity as an artist and creator, 
So I owe much to her influence for helping set me on the path that I walk today. I'm exceedingly grateful she took the time to participate in this project and am fantastically excited to share her insights and wisdom with you. With no further preamble, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Genevieve Bennett. Check. One, two, two, two. I would like to start by talking about Redbird, and given every everything that you've done Mm -hmm. up until this point, I'm wondering why now is the time that Redbird was really incarnated, and how exactly it emerged, if it was compounding events that led to the formation, or one day you just thought, I'm going to start a theater company and did it? Can you just walk me through that? Sure. So, I, when I was in high school, Mm -hmm. um, I started a theater company when I was a junior in high school, and we did shows. I wanted to direct, and I thought that in order to direct, I had to have a company and I don't know why I thought that way, but that was what I thought. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to start a company. And I, it, it was actually quite successful, and we raised lots of money because I was a kid and I wasn't doing drugs, and people were, like, throwing money at me. So that was the easiest fundraising I will <laughs> ever do for the rest of my life. But um, so I think that had I actually known what it had entailed to start a theater company, I probably would not have had the courage to start because Mm -hmm. it was just sort of a thing like oh we need insurance oh I guess I need to have insurance oh I need to accept donations I guess there should be a formal way of doing that and so we just so anyway we did three shows over three summers that were really successful and it was great and um and then I went to college and we dissolved and whatever but I had always I had always wanted to go back to that model and so flash forward many years okay I graduated from grad school and I started self-producing and so I found that I was working with similar people over and over again so that that part of a company has always been appealing to me that idea of having a group of people with which you perpetually and continually work because I think there's a kind of shorthand that develops that's really important but uh, at the same time that is not a super fiscally possible idea for a lot of actors to sort of say I work I am in this company in this country that doesn't work for many people but I did find that there were people that I continually called you Mm -hmm. know and so on our Redbird website they're now called frequent collaborators right so I think that that's sort of where we're headed is this idea of people that we work with continually, but that also have careers outside of Redbird. It's not an exclusive relationship there. Exactly, right. And and on your values for Redbird, you say that you value process built on collaboration with a carefully selected creative team. Yeah. And so with these carefully selected frequent collaborators, Mm -hmm. are there particular qualities that you're looking for? Is it it a very like-minded group? Or are you looking for different qualities that mesh well together? Can I come back to that question after I answer your first question? Yeah, (laughs) Because I want to just finish that because I think it it deals with what we were talking about here, which is that... So anyway, so I wanted to start a company, and then I had babies, and I thought, 
that sort of everything, the world changes completely when you have children. And then I remembered feeling really sad, kind of like sitting at my kitchen counter and being like the art part of me was being like neglected, despite the fact I was working here, but that's a different kind of fulfillment. And, and I kind of thought, well, I've wanted to start a company for a long time and I, it's not going to get any easier, at least like not for the next 12 to 15 years because my children were like two and five at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I might as well just do it now. And I had said to myself, I'm not going to start a company unless I have a managing director because as a self-producer, I had been a one-woman producing machine. So I had been writing all the grants, doing all the fundraising, and I felt like the sort of um, administrative duties oftentimes sort of like subsumed the artistic piece of things, and I did not want that to be the case. I think it still kind of is the case, but we're moving to a place where hopefully it will not always be the case. And so we had a 10-year alumni panel come to SPCPA, and Michelle Hernick, who's the managing director, was my student. It was one of the first classes that we graduated, so that's just insane to me. But mm -hmm. she was sitting on stage talking about how she had a degree in arts administration. I'd always thought Michelle was really smart. She's super articulate. She's a good writer. And I just sort of, I feel like this gets to what you were talking about, this carefully selected creative team. It's a gut thing for me a lot of times where I'm just sort of like, I think this is the right person. I worked with Sarah Richardson for many years and I invited her to be in a show before I even saw her perform because there was just something about her that made me feel like, I think we need to work together. Interesting. And I think that was a similar thing that happened with Michelle. So I called, I, so I saw her afterwards and I'm like, I'm thinking about starting a company. I'm not going to do it now. But, like, I'm just going to put this bee in your bonnet. Like, in a year or two, I might give you a phone call. Two months later, I called her, and I was like, I want to <laughs> do that thing. Why don't you come and meet me, and I'll tell you what my ideas are. Mm -hmm. And we shook on it that day. And so it all came out fully formed because I'd been thinking about it for so long. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what my values were. I knew what the purpose of the company was. It was very easy to write the first grant because it had all been rolling around in my head for years. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, it sort of came out one day because I was like, I'm going to start a theater company, but I already knew what that theater company was because I'd been thinking about it for so long. So, coming back to this carefully selected creative team, I like having a balance of people that I've worked with before and new people. Okay. Because then you just sort of widen your group, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? People, your collaborators. And so, that's nice. I, I don't like to do projects with a bunch of people that I don't know or have never worked with before because that's just kind of scary. But I like having people in the room where there's a shorthand. You know, like Paul D. Cordova and I have worked together several times now. And there's a kind of way, and Leaf and I, you know, there's a kind of way that we work that is, it's a shorthand. You know, there's a kind of way that we work where I don't have to say much and Paul is Paul, I like to work with really smart people. People who are really smart, who make me feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room. You're talking intellectuals? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I'll be really upfront about that. I like to work with people who are intellectually smart and sharp uh, because I like to do plays that are really hard. 
And so I don't think it's worth it unless you struggle. <laughs> but the struggle can be really fun if you have the right people in the room. Definitely. And Definitely. so the chat. So I like to work with people that challenge my point of view. So like Unburied Child, Terry Hempelman, who's a freaking genius, is like a shepherd guy. Like Sam Shepard is his deal. And he knows a lot about Sam Shepard and has a lot of opinions about Sam Shepard, some of which were very different from mine as being like, you know, Terry has like, you know, 30, 40 years of experience, is significantly older than I am and a man. And I am like, you know, creeping up to 40 and a woman. And uh, we were coming at this play from very different angles of his vision just because of who we are. And so meeting him in the room with those ideas not clashing, but sometimes in conflict with each other, was really great. Yeah. You know, being challenged in that way. And I want to, I feel like part of what's unique about my rehearsal room is that I am interested in actors who bring things to the table. I think of myself more as an editor and a shaper and less of a generator. I want to create an environment in which actors feel invited to generate material and create the environment in which people feel like they can do their best work and then uh, sort of invite that forward and then sort of tweak shape but you can only do that if you have the right people in the room absolutely you know and so that's why this sort of carefully selected creative team comes in where it's like I need people who I know are going to bring a whole bunch of shit to the table that's really high quality and so that's why I have the people I mean Fairy Child was like a dream team those people are insane. I mean, and it, it was, turned out beautifully. Thank you. It was it was really was a really, perfect show. I was really pleased, and you know, and it and it was great because I came to and I didn't know Barbara Brilovitz at all. Okay. And I just really wanted to work with her, and I just sort of called her up and was like, Barbara, you don't know me, but I've been a fan for a long time. <laughs> and um, she was like, I can't. That's not enough money. And I was like, I'm gonna find you more money, and then I'll call you back. So. And so I, so that's the other part, but we can talk about that, the find you more money part. But um, I felt like I was intimidated hmm. by Terry and Barbara a lot of the time, and I needed to get over that. But it was also a really good way to come into the room because I was like, I got to be in my A-game every single day because these people know what they are talking about, yeah. you know? Where not like I don't prepare for students, but I feel like with students I can kind of punt if I need to. There's no punting going on in that <laughs> rehearsal room. Everybody was like, well, what about this? And then we would erupt into like this 35-minute conversation, you know, about a line, you know? That sounds intense. It was great. Wow. It was totally great. Yeah, so I like people in the room that are smart. I like people in the room that challenge me. I like people in the room that are good actors. <laughs> and are those <laughs> are those relating to some sort of natural disposition that you have, or is it something that you inherited? I mean, just thinking thinking back over the years, were That's were there any um, role models for that for that mode of thinking? Yeah, sure. I mean, Anne always said you should. It's good to think you're the dumbest person in the room, and, and I was Bogart. like, "Yeah," and I was like, "I will, I will make myself that person <laughs> by surrounding myself with really, really smart people." And I think that I'm a smart person. Like, I, I don't think that I am not a smart person. Without I am a doubt. also an intellectual, <laughs> and so I feel like it's, I'm, not, I'm, 
I'm kind of being self-deprecating, but truly, like the people that I, I really like working with people that are super smart and, and that are challenge me intellectually as well as artistically, and I think that that's really important. And so I think that was something that came from Anne. I also think it just comes from experience, hmm. you know, that the people you find out what kinds of people you like to work with by working with lots of different people. Yeah. I had an interesting experience in grad school where I did a project with a huge group of people. It was a really weird kind of mishmash of random New York City actors that were not getting paying jobs, so they were working for me for free, <laughs> you know? So there's there's that piece. And then, um, sorry, that's gonna be loud now on your recording. <laughs> yeah, let's um, let's pause, see, see if the industrial air conditioner is affecting this. talking about <laughs> yeah, well for those listening we're back having moved from Genevieve's office at SPTPA into the the lab theater where the noise of the industrial air conditioning is a little less I believe we've been talking about some lessons learned from Anne Bogart and your your need for connecting and working collaboratively with intellectuals and how that raises your own level of awareness and involvement with what you're what you're doing sure and i i do want to say it's not just intellectuals you know i mean i want to work with people who are also artistically open and who are up for a challenge you know Mm -hmm. it was really nice barbara came up to me and said thank you for doing this this is really hard Mm -hmm. and i think that that's been a something that's been really important to me is to work on something that's challenging and so having the right people in the room is important oh I remember what I was saying I did this project in graduate school with this weird mishmash of people Right. and there was a particular actor that I worked with who was just really kind of a terrible human and and I don't say that lightly I mean it, it was horrible this person polluted the process I was working with a dramaturg who was the nicest person in the world. And one day I was like, I am going to kill this guy. And she's like, I will be behind you with the shovel to bury him. So, like, I mean, seriously, it was really, really, it was very difficult. And, And it was a really difficult process and a very unfulfilling process because it was so fraught with conflict because of this person. Can you describe in what way the this pollution occurred? Yeah, he was not a safe person in, in the room. I felt like the way that he talked to other actors was not appropriate. He was one of those person, people, every time I gave him a note, there was like a you know, two-minute monologue about why he made the choice that he had made. And I was hmm. like, dude, I'm on your team. I am here to make you look good. Just take the note, please. <laughs> you know? Hmm. And he was also just a a diva, you know. It was like I asked him to sit on a suitcase that was open, uh, you know, to, like, sit on the top part. And he was like, I can't do this. This is uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, come on. Come on, man. (laughs) You know, like, it was just that kind of thing. Right, right. And so, and it was just, but it was a really, and it was a really difficult play. And I had a really large group of people with varied abilities. And it was just really hard. And I felt like, I felt unhappy at the end. And I was like, this is not, this is not okay to feel this way about something that I am passionate about. Hmm. So I decided that for the next project, 
I was going to do an experiment and I was going to work only with my friends. And I was like, I felt like I was in high school again. I was like, nope, I'm only going to do a show with my friends. And I did. <laughs> and it was great. And it turned out. And it was great because... Do you remember the show? I do. It was a, it was a play that, uh, that was written, uh, kind of co-written by myself and a playwright in the program. Wow. At, um, at, at Columbia. And Joey Clark was in it. Nobody else who's local, but Joey was in it. And I just called up all these people who were living in New York who were friends of mine. And I was like, hey, can you do a show for no money? (laughs) (laughs) And everybody was like, nobody's paying me to do anything right now anyway, so sure. And so so we had, uh, so it was, and it was great. And I realized that it wasn't great just because these people were my friends and I loved them, but my friends are people who most, in most ways, share my values. Definitely. And so that became very clear to me that that was important. It was important for me to be in the room with people who shared my values and with people who I liked, because why do you want to work with people that you don't like? Hmm. I just, I know lots of people do that, but it, to me, just doesn't seem worth it. And it's it's not sustainable over a period of time. I don't think so. You know, no. if you, if you want to continue doing the work that you do, you need to enjoy it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like when I come to rehearsal, I want to be in a room that is, you know, as John Ferguson would say, there has to be love in the room hmm. in order for you to do your best work. You know, Brian, he, he brought up that same quote from John. Yeah. Yeah, he... he it's big. We talked the other day and... He had a lot to say about values and having love in the room, that sort of openness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something, it's interesting because I think it's something that we've been talking about in terms of an arts department as a school, this idea of what our values are. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a way that conversation, which is sort of a conversation I'm perpetually having with my colleagues and with Brian, kind of bleeds over into the work that I'm doing as an artist as an individual artist, you know, with Redbird, this idea of like, what are the things that are really important to me? What are our values? So Michelle and I started articulating what our mission statement, but then it seemed important to also articulate what the things were that are of value to us as a company. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that you mentioned the connection between school and your work in Redbird. Yeah. Considering those sorts of connections, yeah. also bringing your family, your friends, anything into account, yeah. are there any big questions right now that, you, that you're turning over in your own head? I mean, this, this always interests me because I go through phases in my life that seem to have themes of one sort or another based on you know, questions of sure. who I am or what I'm doing. Sure. What, what would you say it is for you right now, overall? Wow. Well, there are a lot of personal things that I'm not going to talk about here mm-hmm. um, that are preoccupying my mind at the moment. However, I think largely, well, I think the big question that I'm always asking is why do we do this? And, you know, does this matter? Hmm. I think it's hard. I think, I know that it does matter, but I don't know, but I question whether it matters enough. Hmm. When I look at the world, 
and I sort of see all of the tragedies and atrocities that are happening all the time, I wonder how doing a play is an answer to that. And I think that it, it is an answer in a, on a very microcosmic level, that you get in a room with people and you make something instead of destroy something. Mm. And that it's not about ego and that it's not about... Um, that, that it's about a collective drive toward something. It's about... Art is, I think, acting and, and theater is about empathy. I, I think... So I think on a microcosmic level, I, I, I know that it makes some sort of mark in the world, but I often wonder if it makes enough of a mark. And so for me, I think what has sort of been the, um, maybe the antidote to that sort of doubt is the fact that I teach. Hmm. And I think that teaching for me, I look at as serving it's a way to serve and i think that the world needs more servants and so if i can help a student find their voice or if i can help a student discover a passion or if i can create an environment where a student feels like they can be themselves or if i can create a room where somebody feels challenged, you know, I, I feel like in that way, I feel like my reach hmm. is greater. And I feel fed by that too. I mean, I, and, and part of what is so great for me about being a teacher is that we can have this conversation, you know, and Michelle can be the managing director of my company and Charlotte, who is my student, can be in the show that I just did. You yeah, know, like that yeah. there's this kind of coming around that is incredibly rewarding for me. And not just like, good job me, but these amazing young people that I am working with who go on to be superstars, you know, in, w in whatever way they do that, right, you know, right. and, and so... So that's really, I love that about, and I feel like in a way that is sort of the antidote to the doubt I have about, like, is doing a play enough? <laughs> yeah. That was, wow, that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> and I guess the, the main question that rises from that for me is for, let's say, the students mm -hmm. in, in this, you know, in this dynamic, mm -hmm. When doubts arise for them, what, how, do you have any practical advice on you know, applying the same antidote? If, yeah. gi given they, they don't have a, a role as a teacher, in what way can they still serve and also expand that degree of compassion that accompanies art? Well, I think if you are working on something your attitude toward what you work on is important. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you adjust the way that you're thinking about the work that you're doing, I'm gonna back up. Because I think attitude is kind of a loaded word. I think when you set out to do something, there's an intention. 
And I think if the intention is placed in a way that feels fulfilling to you, the work will be. You know, I think it has to do with intentionality. You know, is my intent to create something that is life-giving, right? Is my intent to create something that fosters community? Is my intent to create something that is X, Y, and Z? If the intention is placed in a way that feels right to you, I think that that's what's important. That's what creates fulfillment. And that you're, if your in, uh, intention is sort of connected to your worldview, which I think it, it in some ways must necessarily be, then you are creating something that you're working in a way that hopefully feels good and right. Hmm. Also, get with people that inspire you. Hmm. You know, I mean, I think that's the big one. Like be in the room with people that are inspiring you or have coffee with people that inspire you or, you know, get with the people that make you want to be better. Hmm. Yeah, I've always heard that you become the average of the five people that you're closest to or that you spend the most time with. Oh my God, that's frightening to think about, but yes. (laughs) I mean, but given what you said, maybe not for you, you've been hanging out with some pretty pretty influential people. This is true. When I think about the people I spend the most time with, I am a cross between a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. I don't know if that's exactly where I want to be, but... Hey, actually though, to use that as a transition. Sure. um, what, What lessons have you learned as a parent that apply to the work that you do. I mean, because children oh bring so much to to the world. And I mean, I, I have no children, <laughs> but I, I just, from what I've seen and heard, it, it totally shifts your, your worldview. Yeah. I didn't make art for a while because I was making children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which like, is a project all its own. Oh my God. And, and, um, and so, uh, you know, it's um, well, it's humbling hmm. to have children. That's good. It's always good to be humbled. I think also, oh, here's something that I've learned from parenting that has sort of shifted my worldview, mm-hmm. which is not to attach to any particular outcome. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, if my if I attach to the idea that my child is going to take a nap today, mm-hmm. and then the child doesn't take a nap, there's a lot of disappointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have made plans based on that particular outcome. Mm-hmm. Or if I, my, my, I attach to the idea that my child is not going to wake up in the middle of the night, And then my child does wake up in the middle of the night. There's this sense of failure and disappointment that comes. (laughs) Notice this is all related to sleeping. Um, But I do think, um, and so I think that not attaching to this, to a particular outcome is a very, is actually a a great art practice. Hmm. I tell a lot of the young directors that they're not to hold on too tight. Hmm. Right, that you have to be able to kind of let go, and like Wendy would say, leave room for inspiration. Right. So if you've already decided what the outcome is going to be, all you're going to miss a lot. Hmm. Right, because you've put on blinders about I am going from A to B, and you miss all of the things that could be off at like 
A and a half. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so I find that also as a teacher, too, that, you know, there I have ideas where when I walk in the room, like, oh, we're going to do this today. And then I look around and I read the room and I'm like, that is not going to happen today. Like, that is not the day that this day is going to be, right. you know? Right, And so I have to kind of tear up my plan and think, okay, the room is telling me that we need to do this today instead of this today. And how do you, how do you strike a balance between adapting to change when it seems necessary, not holding on to an outcome, th- that and also... You know, the times when this needs to happen, sure. I really have to put all of my focus towards this one aim. Sure. Which, and, and those situations definitely do come up. I mean, with a of deadline course. with a play, for example, yeah. You, yeah. you have to have it done. So how do you, how do you strike that balance? Um, I think that you have to try to give yourself time. Okay. I think time is important, and time is really hard hmm. in terms of the American theater. Because you have to pay people for their time, and yeah. no one has any money. So I think that trying to build in enough time for explore it was great. Like for a very child, everybody was on a seven-week contract. So it was a three-week rehearsal process, which was so painfully short. Hmm. But everybody was like, hey, can we get together just, you know, kind of on our own and read the play and talk a little bit before rehearsal starts? You know, so there was kind of a... And then we had read the play up at Lahamadu over the summer, like a, a year ago. And so there was this trying to at least build in time to steep, if not to actually be working, Sure, I think is really important. And then there are sometimes, there's just time where you're like, well, we just have to do this. Like, yeah. I would love to sit here and talk about these four lines for four more hours, but really, like, we have to get a play done, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that, you know, you have the right people in the room, that that works, you know? And there are days where, like, in class, you're like, I would love to sit around and talk about X, Y, and Z, have a philosophical conversation about, you know, these things, but we actually have, like, a performance that we have to do in, like, two days, so I think that we should probably (laughs) rehearse, you know? Yeah. But I think you bring your questions into your work. I mean, you don't separate who you are from your rehearsal process. You know, the things that you're thinking about and the things that are important to you and the values that you have come into the room with you. Hmm. And so they shape what's happening in the room. Hmm. Shifting gears just slightly. Sure. Speaking of values, Mm -hmm. which you mentioned, Mm -hmm. growing up just outside of Chicago Mm -hmm. where you did, living with your family, going to school in those formative Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Can you just start to describe what that was all like? What values you might have taken from those experiences, lessons from your parents, teachers, mentors that you had as as a youth? Yeah. I grew up in a super white, Christian, conservative environment. Long pause. Sounds familiar. It's familiar. Yeah, I'm sure it does. And so, and and so, but I I went to one of those huge suburban high schools. You know, but I think there were like 700 people in my graduating class. But I was really lucky that the school that I went to had a really strong fine arts program. 
And so I sang in the elite choir and I played piano and sang with the jazz band wow. and I did plays. Yeah. And I think I did speech team for a while. You know, like I had the opportunity to do a lot of things extracurricularly. It sounds, yeah, very well-rounded. Um, and also during my day, you know. Mm. But I don't think, I don't know that in my, and I had wonderful teachers who mm -hmm. were great, but I don't know that in my formative years in school, I was, I thought of myself as an artist I thought of myself as sort of a, like a musical person, you know, and an actor, but I didn't think of myself as an artist. And I think that's one of the things that I really strive and that I think SBCPA is good at is sort of, we're not just training you to be a practitioner. We're trying to help you to find a way to think of yourself as an artist. Mm. And I think that was something for me that, that kind of came more intuitively yeah. and, and later. But I think that having sort of exposure to all of these things, I mean, my parents took me to see all the big musical tours that came through Chicago. And then one year, and I'm not sure why this happened, but we got season tickets to Steppenwolf. Okay. And the first sh second, this is a little lie, because I went to a theater camp where we went to Steppenwolf, which may have been why I told them we should get tickets to Steppenwolf. But... I, the second show that I saw, which was the first in our season, mm -hmm. was Buried Child. Wow. Directed by Gary Sinise. Oh, no way. With um, Lois Smith and James Gammon. And Ethan Hawke, actually, wow. played Vince. And at that point, I had seen, like, Phantom of the Opera and, you know, helicopters flying in from the ceiling in Miss Saigon and, you know, things like that, which had been, which were really important for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, really important for me to see those things. But um, there was a moment that actually was so, it was, like, so satisfying because I felt like this happened at the end every night at Buried Child. You know, like, Brian would walk up the stairs and then there was just, like, Ooh. this long... <laughs> silence you know yep. and um and i remember distinctly the image of that moment at steppenwolf and what i remember i think more is that silence that's and i feel like in that silence my 17 year old brain exploded where i was just sort of like oh hmm. oh this is theater hmm. This, this thing, not yeah. helicopters and boats that move on tracks and giant barricades, you know, like, yeah. which is all great and fine. I'm not diminishing that. But for me, that was like, this is what I can do. Like this kind of, you can make this happen for a whole group of people. This sort of sense of like, what the fuck just happened? You know what I mean? And I think that that... I think that was really exciting to me. Interesting. And so, um, and I think Steppenwolf was a big part of my education in terms of beginning to think of myself as an artist because I had started this theater company and they had started a theater company when they were like, you know, teenagers in a basement in Highland Park, you know, and it was Gary Sinise and Terry Kinney and... Um, somebody else who's famous who I can't think of right now and then you know John Malkovich and Laurie Metcalf and Joan Allen and all these amazing actors who were just kind of like just starting out and I think that that story was super inspiring to me mm -hmm. and and I think 
Yeah, I think that without really consciously doing it, I think that Steppenwolf was like a, a model for me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do think is similar about Steppenwolf is that they are sort of an actor's organization. And I am not an actor, but I think I am definitely an actor's director. Hmm. And I think that that's... I think they probably had more influence than I thought until having this conversation right now. Yeah, it sounds powerful. Wow. I can take that any number of directions. I'm not sure sure which. There's so much to unpack from that. I... Just based off personal interest. Sure. I I would like to hear a little more about those sorts of communities, like Steppenwolf, and because that that influenced you. Are are there any other um, collectives or anything like that? Any anything you can think of that you admired growing up, even if it came later on? Yeah. Well, I think definitely the City Company, which is Anne Bogart's company. The City Company. Um, S-I-T-I, stood for Saratoga International Theater Institute. Okay. Now they're just City. City. But she has a company that is not exclusive, but pretty. It, it, like they, like people stick with her. You know, there is definitely a company model. Mm-hmm. And Anne always tells this story about Ariane Manushkin, who's a French director mm-hmm. who is like, Anne, you can't do anything until you have a company. <laughs> Ariane Manushkin's company is like this totally international group of people that like live in community they travel, like, they pick up people as they travel the world, you know, who become part of the company. Like, Argan Manushkin's company is, like, the Uber company, you know <laughs> what I mean? So it's sort of like, you know, <clears throat> and also uh, subsidized by the French government. Wow. You know, because that's how it works in Europe. Full-time over there. <laughs> you know? And so I think that that this... So I think City Company, as some as a successful company that trains together, that shares a common vocabulary, that's powerful to me. I think that has been um, influential. I don't know about anything else. I mean, there's certainly, you know, I've got, like, my top five theater experiences, and I think they all have in common exquisite acting. So mm. I think that's really important to me. Mm. That's one of the things that Michelle and I talked about when we were creating the mission statement was that I think that a lot of small theater companies suffer from poor acting because it's hard to pay people what they need to be paid. And so we made, in our mission statement, it says the highest caliber artist. Sure does. And that's really important that the that the actors that we're working with are really great actors. Exquisite acting is important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I think about, you know, the things that have really moved me as a person, and it's been, you know, performances, particular performances, where I've been like, holy cow, you know? That yeah. was just beautiful, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I mean, I feel like collaboration has become such a buzzword. But, I, but it's true, you know, there is a way of working with people that is collaborative. That doesn't mean, and, and I think there's a difference, and I think this is really important, that there is sort of like working as a collective to like collectively create something. Mm-hmm. That is one thing. That is not what I do. I, I, am a, I am the director in the room, that I am the leader 
of this project. And I feel like collaboration works best when there is a strong leader at the helm. That's my personal point of view. I'm not saying that you can't do it the other way, but I can't do it the other way. That doesn't work for me. And so that's why when we do in viewpoints, I tell students that when they're making uh, collaborate or making compositions that they can work as a benevolent dictatorship or a democracy because I think there are two different ways of working and I am definitely the benevolent dictator in the room before we <laughs> sorry I've totally gone someplace else now oh it's perfect I, I love tangents before before we started recording we yeah. talked we talked briefly about a particular theater and how we but we both deemed it somewhat I mean very unfair that they didn't pay young actors. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I told you I, I'm 19 and seeing my friends, you know, people that I've collaborated with over, over these past couple of years, I told you that there, there can be a sort of hesitance to stand up for yourself, say, hey, I, I really need to get paid for this. Yeah. Um, and similarly, with what you've mentioned about collaboration and how it's not everyone necessarily has an equal say. Your, your view of collaboration is that there is a director that leads the project. Mm -hmm. I have seen and experienced situations in which young people particularly mm -hmm. can be very hesitant to assume a leadership role. Sure. Do you have any words of encouragement for, for doing that? As you know, as people are are still really deciding who they are and want to be um, yeah. amidst all of that. Yeah, you are serving the project. Hmm. I think that's really important that you and you are serving the people that you're working with. That you are not making it happen. You are creating an environment in which it can happen. Hmm. That's really important to me. I think as a director. I think of myself as a midwife, <laughs> which is sort of weird, but I think it's true that there is that that in the best of possible circumstances, I am just helping to bring into being what is already wanting to be born. Hmm. I think in terms of assuming leadership roles, I think that it's it's part, part partly about jumping and just being like, this is really terrifying. But I want. But I'm going to do this, which was sort of what happened with Redbird, where I was like, "This is going to be really hard, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and um, and this is going to be difficult in many ways." But it's. But I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. I think that, in terms of getting paid or not getting paid, there is a a period of time where you're just not going to get paid, and that's okay. Michelle and I created a budget for Redbird and we sat down and we looked at it and we were like this is not feasible <laughs> we are not going to make that much money and so the first thing we did was we cut our own fees wow so Michelle and I didn't get paid <laughs> but everybody else did on time and fairly I think <laughs> and that's really important uh, to me, I think sacrifice is also a big part of being a leader. Sacrifice. You know, I think we think about leadership as like I am the big strong person in the room that's going to make something happen. When ultimately, I think it's about sacrifice. It's about sort of 
how, what are you willing to do to help this thing happen? Hmm. And sometimes that means that your ego gets a little bit bruised. Or sometimes that means that you don't make any money and everybody else does. And sometimes that means that you have to be wrong in front of a lot of people. <laughs> and sometimes, you know what I mean? Like there's, I think there's a lot, I think being a good leader is about being a servant. Hmm. And I don't, I think we would, I think we would live in a better world if more leaders thought that way. Speaking of which, another of your values at Redbird is women in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And from what you d just described, the you know very egotistical version mm -hmm. of leadership <laughs> mm -hmm. seems to stem from the uh, the male dominated leadership yep, yep. Um, <laughs> and and you know what you what you were saying about sacrifice it seems to be more of a um a, a feminine sort of concept and not necessarily not necessarily female but feminine in in sort of an eastern sense yeah yeah, of, yeah. yeah. no that's interesting yeah. that's really interesting and astute of you too can, yeah, that's, can yeah. can you just speak on women in leadership roles? Sure. Attack it however you want to. Sure. <laughs> to proceed. We live in a super sexist environment. Mm -hmm. I was watching The Daily Show last night because I feel like if I cannot laugh at what's happening in the world, I will spend the day crying. And there was this clip of Elizabeth Warren. And Hillary Clinton yeah. on stage together. Yeah. Two really smart, really kind of amazing women. You know, they take that as you will. But, like, you cannot deny that these are two powerful, intelligent people on stage. And they both happen to be wearing blue. And what did people talk about? What they were wearing. Hmm. Did they call each other to, you know, figure out what they were going to wear that day? Are they selling that shirt? I was like, what? I'm so <laughs> mad. I just wanted to start throwing things. I was like, every single person in the Republican debate was wearing a red or blue tie and a dark suit. Like, you don't talk it's about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was yeah. just like, what the hell? So yeah. it makes me so angry. Okay, sorry. That was totally a tangent. I will talk about women in leadership roles now that I've had an opportunity to rant. The theater is still a male-dominated world. SPCBA is a very false <laughs> image of the theater world because hmm. we're set, for those of you that don't know, we are 70%, almost 70% women to 30% men. It's a trip. <laughs> it's a trip. And so that that is not the way it is in the professional world, particularly in leadership positions. If you're looking at designers, stage managers, and directors, those are all three of those areas are dominated by men. The role models that I have had as directors over time have mainly been women. And I don't think that was conscious, hmm. but I think that is important now when I think about it. It's interesting. Uh, Anne always talks about this thing, who are, who are, whose are the shoulders? Who are the shoulders that you stand on? And, and I was invited. This was so sweet. Um, Kenzie invited me. There was a, a thing at the U where they had been working with women. Mm -hmm. Women had been working with another woman to make this piece. And then they, they were all young women. And then they invited 
women who had been mentors to them to come. And we sat in, and there were all these women in this room, um, and we sat in this big circle. And then each of us was asked to bring like five pieces of wisdom to share. And then, and then they also performed for us, which hmm. was lovely. And I was in this room with all of these amazing theater women. And I was just like, this is awesome. Like, I want to be in this room all the time. And so I think that now, and then having been asked by a former student, you know, who I adore, I think that now I realize that there are people who are standing on my shoulders and the privilege and responsibility of that. And I think, you know, Susie and I, uh, Susie Messerol and I are yep. both women and we're both directors. And I think that there have been a lot of really great women directors coming out of this program. I think in part because they're able to see women in director roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And I think, I think women, well, I don't know that this is true. The women that I know are inclined towards community in some way, um, in a, I think in a deep way. What sort of community? Well, I think like this idea of bringing all these women together to share wisdom. There's that, a kind of community in that that I think is really rich. And I think about um, Lisa Channer, who's at the U, who, <clears throat> who I think of as a role model, like somebody whose shoulders I'm standing on as someone who is an artist that I respect as well as a mother and a teacher. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's a rock star. And so I think about, you know, she, she started this, like, young women directors meetup thing that's like a quarterly meeting where young women directors can come and talk. It's weird now. All of a sudden, I'm kind of on the other side. I'm not the young woman director anymore. I'm on the side of people who are coming to meet young women, you know, like, mm. I, which is kind of cool and exciting, and I'm not quite sure how that happened. Somebody asked me, it was interesting, in the bathroom at Barry Child, <laughs> this woman was like, if I saw that one of your values is women in leadership roles, why didn't you start with a play by a woman, by a, by a female playwright? And I was like, okay, well, thank you for asking me that question. I said, well, I said, our, our, the value is not necessarily that we're telling women's stories, although we will tell women's stories. This is just our first show. Um, but the but that they're told through the angle of vision of a woman director, hmm. and there's a woman managing director, and that you know there are women designers. So it's not for me. It's not necessarily about creating work about women, as much as it is just sort of what happens when you have a lot of women in the room in hmm. leadership roles and how that can shift the dynamic of the room. Hmm. And and what elements do you think shift with? with women in the room, in leadership roles? Oh, that's a hard question because I think that it's, that kind of asks me to make a generalization. I think there's probably a greater um, instinct towards collaboration. Mm -hmm. There may be a little more empathy in the room. I think the communication style is probably different in the room. 
I think women have a different kind of fierceness than men. Fierceness. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm me not about saying that. like it's soft in the room. You know what I mean? Like no, I don't. Not at it's all. not soft in the room. I think that you know there's a sort of. No, I don't know how to. Talk. I don't know how to articulate this. I mean, and setting all fear of generalization aside. Yeah. Just talking from your best experiences with strong women in the room. Sure. Well, I don't, I mean, for me as a director, I have, or as an actor, I have not worked with a lot of women directors. So that's a deal. Yeah. You know, like that's a deal. Um, And so uh, I I am hoping to ameliorate that for my students, Mm. you know, that they've been in the room with all kinds of people um, by the time they leave here. I feel like high school theater for me was the director was a lovely person, but it was more about like directing traffic, you know, because it was like 50 people on stage doing a musical, you Ooh. know. So it's just it's more that is kind of about directing traffic, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. I, I did work with oh, this is interesting. I hadn't thought about this in a while. I worked with this woman, Kate Wariski. She's the artistic director of Intar Theater, which I think is in upstate New York or in Seattle, which are on opposite sides of the country. But um, And Kate um, was really smart, and she came out of ART, and she was sort of Robert Brewstein's protege. And she she was young when she and she directed The Crucible at NYU that I was in. And... So many of the people in that show kept saying, God, she's such a bitch. And I feel like that is what happens. Like, I feel like that's the deal. You, when you are a leader in, <laughs> and you're a woman, you're a bitch, mm-hmm. you know? And I kind of thought, I saw this great, it was like a meme or something, or like a (laughs) Tina Fey quote. Somebody was talking about, like, Hillary Clinton's a bitch, you know? And she's like, yeah, and I'm a bitch, and Amy Poehler's a bitch, and you know what? We get shit done, you know? (laughs) And I just kind of thought, like, I guess that's true. Um, But I think that's interesting. I I think there's like a, I mean, that's, that's, that's old news, but... I don't know. I've sort of now. I've really, I think, run off the rails about something. But I even so, that's, I don't know what else to say about that. No, that's great. <laughs> and tying this all together, sure. Because I've been gearing a lot of this towards young artists in particular, sure, sure. to the young women listening. Yeah. Do you do you have any particular words of advice? You have to make your own opportunities. No one, and and this is for a lot of people, but particularly women, Mm -hmm. no one is going to come up to you and hand you a job because they're going to hand the job to like five men before they get to you. And it's true. That is the truth. And so you have to make your own opportunities until people sit up and go, oh, and then someone might hand you a job and Mm -hmm. and still maybe not. But then you've created, and I think about... Alexandra Hatch and yeah. Scarlett Thompson yeah. and creating girl theater and making that work. That's what you do. You go, I'm going to, I want to make something. I have something to say. I have a particular point of view. I'm going to make my own opportunity. And then you make it happen. And then you just keep making it happen. I mean, that's what I did. I self-produced for 12 years, you know, wow. I just kept doing it and you just have to keep doing it. You know, and the the thing about self-producing that is kind of nice 
because you have to raise a whole shit ton of money and that's really really hard but is that you get to do the project on your own terms no one is saying you have to do it this way you know you make your own terms and that's really important too so it's you know I did I did a freelance gig where all I had to do was show up and direct the play but the play I had to direct was like The Good Doctor by Neil Simon you know like (laughs) not what I would have chosen I mean it was fine and great and some people love that but like yeah. one of my values is like being challenged by the material and not feel that so much with the good doctor but there I, sorry can I talk about this really quickly yeah. about that that yeah. there there is there is a lesson in that though and that I think is really important in, too. in doing work that you in somebody handing you a play and saying I'm going to give you money to direct this play hmm. And it wasn't like I loved The Good Doctor, but I had to f- figure out a way to fall in love with The Good Doctor if I was going to do a good job. Hmm. That doesn't mean that you take something that's offensive to you, you know, and goes against your personal Find grain. Find out how to love it. And you go like, <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to love this terribly offensive thing, you know, that someone is going to give me money for. That's when you say no and walk away. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, that there, there is the reality of the fact that, like, oh, somebody's going to pay me, like, a pretty large chunk of change to do this thing. I should do this because then I can eat and pay my rent and take my children to the doctor. You know, <laughs> like, th- <laughs> these are important things. Okay, so going back. Oh, making your own opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's always the biggest piece of advice I have for anyone who wants to be an artist. And do you That have... big break is a fallacy. Yeah. It doesn't exist. It's yeah. never going to happen. And if that's what you're waiting for, you will be waiting for your whole life. You just make it. You just keep making your work. Hmm. And then you get to a point, which I felt like happened with Buried Child, where I looked around the theater every night and I was like, I don't know these people. I know maybe 10% of the people in the audience tonight. And that was really exciting. I was like... I don't know who these people are and they're coming to see this work you know like that was really for me I was like oh that is something hmm. that is something hmm. when the shift of the like the the population of your audience shifts drastically from everyone you know to like five percent or ten percent people you know that's a great thing what does that feel like it's easier hmm. <laughs> because you don't there's not the personal stake yeah um no it, it it's great it's really cool yeah. because then you i really tried to talk to people after the show too you know i i part of the reason i gave a curtain speech each night was so that people could identify me so that i could like approach people or people felt comfortable approaching me at intermission or after the show because there's something really exciting about sort of l- learning who this audience is and and how to and what they think and how what's interesting to them you know that was really it was cool it was great and I had lots of interesting conversations with people like that woman in the bathroom and you know other people who were like total shepherd aficionados and that's what had brought them to the show or people who you know were fans of Terry or Barbara you know but um it was really it it was cool cool Backtracking just slightly. Yeah. And then I've got one more big question, and I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll wrap up with a a few quick ones. Sure, Um, this has been fun. Backtracking to making it happen. Mm -hmm. Do you have any resources that come to mind? Talk to somebody who has done it. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm having coffee this week with some young people who are making a show. Yeah. You know, I think that, like, 
there's no one way to do it, but I think it's really important to talk to people who have, who okay. have self-produced, who have made things happen, and you know, to find out how they did it, what worked for them. Um, because there's always, you know, there, there are some logistical things that you just have to do, like space mm-hmm. and maybe some money for mm-hmm. something, you know, insurance if you're in somebody else's space, like all those small things that you don't really think about that are important, um, you know, like printing your program, you know, like all the <laughs> making a postcard, all those details, you know, all the details that sometimes you don't think about because you have this grand artistic vision, but part of your deal is to get people to your grand artistic vision and that piece is a lot of administrative sort of practical things that sometimes you don't think about. And so I think speaking to someone who has done that is helpful, really the most helpful probably. There are some great resources in town that are sort of more formal. Springboard for the Arts um, is great. Actually, the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, MRAC, they are a granting organization, but they also offer lots of free workshops about lots of different things. So if you go on their website, first of all, all the PDFs from like all the workshops they've ever given, like the PowerPoints of those are just on their website. They're not super informative because they're designed to go with a talk, but you get like the general point. But then they also offer all these, if you go on their website, they do, I don't know how many, but like lots of free workshops, things about like a board, getting a board of directors or getting people to see your show or oh. a grant writing workshop or things like that. Cool. And, and those are good. And for those listening, I'm going to put links to those websites in the show notes. And you really answered, answered my last question with all of that too, as far as resources go. Sure. And, um mentor figure speaking with someone who yeah. has done what you're intending to do yeah so um, just before we wrap up a couple of quick questions sure what books have you given out most frequently probably well two uh nine stories nine stories by salinger and uh letters to a young poet by okay. Rilke. Probably those are oh oh and and uh, a director prepares by Anne Bogart. A director prepares. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I've read those those first two, both mm-hmm. amazing books, and I'll have to I'll have to find a copy of that third. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who in town do you think is doing the best work today? Oh, God. And and there's there's tons of people. We have a great culture here. Oh my God, that's so hard. Whoever comes to the Chance. top of your mind. Ah. Uh. I'm a big fan of Lisa Channer. Okay. Um, and Theater Novi Most. I think they're doing really interesting work. Mm-hmm. I just saw Transatlantic Love Affair for the first time, and I was like, awesome. This is great. <laughs> this is super cool. I don't know. We're in a really rich community. I don't know that I can really answer that question. I feel like I see a lot of interesting things, and then I see things that, I'm, that are not so interesting, and I think that... I think Ryan's a really good director. Mm. I think his work's really interesting. I think John is a really, John Ferguson, sorry, Ryan Underbaki. John Ferguson is a really good director. And I'm really, I, uh, sometimes I love his work, sometimes not so much. But like, it's always interesting. Always gets you thinking. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, you should talk to both of them. Have you talked to Ryan already? Nope. You should um, talk to Ryan. That's and a John. plan. You also mentioned Springboard for the Arts, and um, 
we're gonna have some conversations coming up with with a few people there too. Oh, good! Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. awesome. Trying to expand the circle. As yeah, much as we can. that's yeah. great. Yeah. I think people who you talk to will lead you to other people to talk to. Yeah. you should talk to Lisa. Lisa? Yeah. Can you get me in touch with her? Yeah. All right. I can. Cool. Yeah. We'll 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 leave it at that for today. Great. Thanks very much for your time, Thank Genevieve. You. It was my pleasure. Yeah, we'll have to get together for a part two sometime. That would be great. All right. Hey, that's episode two. Just a few things before you take off. First and foremost, as always, huge thank you to Genevieve Bennett for being on the show. Give her some love and support on social media. Visit redbird-theater.com and stay up to date. There's a lot of cool stuff going on over there. You've got to check it out. Big thank you again to Josh Johnson for permission to use the song Vibrations in the opening sequence. It's by Willie G., Josh the Classic, and Christopher Berg. You can find that and more on SoundCloud. If you've enjoyed this podcast or found use from it, there are a number of ways you can support it. Best of all, I believe, sharing it with someone you know, however that works for you. You could share it on social media. Speaking of which, you can send me feedback at Chance by Chance on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. On your way out, here's another track from Josh. It's called Magic. Until next time, Thank you for listening.